Our reading is from uh, James, chapter 1, verses 9 to 18. Um, that's on page 3 of our service sheet if you want to follow it. And I suspect it'll also come on our marvelous techni technical technological screen. James 1, 9 to 18. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation, since they will pass away like a wild flower. For the, the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant. Its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they are dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then, after desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin. And sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Well, thank you very much, uh, David, for reading that to us. Love you to keep a sight of James chapter 1. Uh, before your eyes, let me pray and ask for God's help. We've prayed for our hearts to be purified, Heavenly Father, that we would be ready to do your will. And it is our longing that we who lack wisdom you would generously grant that wisdom to us. Open our eyes to see wonderful things in your word and open our hearts to love what we see and to live what we hear. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm pretty reluctant with... Uh, what's been going on in the news to mention anything about sporting events happening in Australia, tennis or cricket. I, I want to just distract attention from Australia and mention Wimbledon instead. I understand, I am unlikely ever to know this by experience, but I understand that as you walk out to the centre court, you go through a doorway at uh, Wimbledon centre court that's inscribed with a quotation from Rudyard Kipling's poem, If... And the quotation is this, if you can meet with triumph or disaster and treat those two imposters just the same. 
So Kipling was defining maturity, human maturity. If you can do this or that, my son, you'll be a man. And specifically in the quotation, coping with success or failure, triumph or disaster was the matter at issue. And it looks to me like James would agree with him in the reading we had this morning. In fact, we read last week that the Christian life is full of trials, which we must learn how to handle, those water swells that Neil was talking about at the start of the service. Um, success or failure, the ups and downs, can equally be a trial. Some of us might think of our lives as successful today. Others might worry that they've failed. Well, James suggests in our section today that both conditions will test our faith, whether we're in humble circumstances or rich. Let me reread that first little section again from verse 9. Believers in humble circumstances ought to take pride in their high position, but the rich should take pride in their humiliation since they will pass away like a wild flower, for the sun rises with scorching heat and withers the plant, its blossoms fall, and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. And that is a little window, it seems to me, on what it was like in the church of James's day, where many of the believers were from poor backgrounds, and some, no doubt, were well off, and God has chosen both of those groups to belong to his people together. So he put rich and poor alongside each other in the church as equals, which easily, if you imagine, led to a trial for both groups. The poor could resent the rich. So James says to them, you take delight in your high position. In other words, what God thinks of you. That defines how wealthy I am, not my bank balance. Never mind what the world thinks of me in God's sight, where it really counts. If I am following Christ, I am a beloved son or daughter of the King of heaven, cherished and deeply loved. That is riches. And that's what we will rejoice in and marvel at for all eternity. Karl Barth was one of the top theologians last century, one of the most prolific writers as well. Volume after volume of church dogmatics. And he was asked once what the most profound thought he had had in all his studies was. You can imagine everybody was poised to write it down. You know what he said? Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. That's riches. And that's ours if we belong to Christ. Whereas the cash rich who became Christians, they might need the lesson working the other way around. Christians in that situation might feel that the lifestyle that they had enjoyed was riches, and that's crumbled. Maybe now old friends in that social set ostracize the wealthy Christians. Maybe they've got to hang out with people who dress differently and eat differently to what they used to. So James says to them, Oh, you know, the pleasures of wealth are short-lived, so rejoice in your humiliation, because that's actually a step into reality. In God's kingdom, the way up is down, being humbled. And you 
are blessed to have discovered that in time if you come to Christ in your lifetime. Better to have been humbled now than to face that later when we die or when Jesus comes back, when our bank balance is going to be completely irrelevant. So you see the point he's making? Both riches and poverty can equally be a trial. Somebody who is hard up can be just as much a materialist as somebody who's well off. Both in different ways can get preoccupied about their financial situation as, as if that's the absolute thing in life. And both need the wisdom to see clearly that triumph and disaster, success and failure, boom or bust, they're actually imposters, said Kipling. They don't tell the whole story. Whereas my status before God, whether I have money or not, is what really matters. And verse 12, which Susan helpfully mentioned in the prayers, is such a helpful summary verse. It recaps what we thought about last week. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial, because having stood the test, that person will receive the crown of life that the Lord has promised to those who love him. When we face trials, we can rejoice. Not, of course, in the trials themselves, but in the long-term outcome. If we respond rightly to them, then God will be at work through them, preparing us for life beyond this world. And he will never let us down. That is a certainty. What God has for those who love him is beyond description. And it will put all the trials of this life into perspective. When the Puritan Richard Baxter was on his deathbed, a friend came in to visit him, came into the room, and asked him, how are you, Richard? And Richard Baxter replied, I'm almost well. That's the right perspective, isn't it? There is a crown of life waiting for the believer. Jesus has gone ahead to prepare a place for us, and he holds that promise out to us, and keeping our eyes on that is what will help us in the here and now to make sense of that up and down movement that we thought about at the start of the service, the trials of life. So let me ask, if I may, how you are faring with your trials at the moment. How are the trials, this is the question we ought to ask, how are the trials leaving you in your relationship with God? Now, it is possible that the trials are what we blame for our spiritual struggles. Maybe you're thinking that at the moment. Someone might be thinking, well, give me a break, Simon. If life were not so hard, I would be doing better spiritually. Or even we might phrase it like this, give me a break, God. You sent the trials, so don't blame me if I'm doing badly. And the next little section in our reading is another dose of reality for us. Let me read on from verse 13. When tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me, for God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he tempt anyone. But each person is tempted when they're dragged away by their own evil desire and enticed. Then after desire has conceived, it gives birth to, to sin, and sin, when it's full grown, gives birth to death. Now, this may not be apparent from our translation, but the word James uses for temptation is the same word he used earlier for trials. 
Um, they are almost like two sides of the same coin. That may be why the word fits for both, though. They have a slightly different sense. God wants to use trials to mature our character. He has a good purpose in the trials. Trouble is that when we encounter those trials, which God intends for good, you and I are not standing on level ground morally. So any circumstances that we encounter, which might move us or disturb us or upset our equilibrium in some way, if we aren't careful, because we're not standing on level ground morally, they'll take us downhill morally, not onwards and upwards, as we might hope with God's help. The trials, they're external to us, and they are neutral, but you and I, we aren't morally neutral. So the trials easily, externally, the trials easily trigger a reaction within us, temptations internally because of our sin. See what I'm trying to say about the two sides of the same coin? Those experiences are external to us, but internally because of my sin, the trials become, as it were, a temptation to me. But we can't blame God for our reaction to the trials. So James says, don't try and pass the buck to God. No one who's tempted should say, God is tempting me. He isn't tempted by sin himself, and he does not tempt us and tantalize us. No, the problem is our own human sinful nature. And notice the progression there. It's put in stark terms. My desires leading to actions, and then the end of the road is death and judgment. Sin is never content to doze and be inactive. With any encouragement, it will grow, and it will grip us more tightly. So a thought, said someone, and reap an action. So an action, reap a habit. So a habit, reap a character. So a character, and you reap a destiny. I wonder if we're taking seriously the fact that you and I as sinners are not on level ground morally. We'll have a tendency downwards towards sin, which will captivate us and grip us if we don't take heed, especially when we're undergoing trials. Has that reality dawned on you and got you praying as it should? Be alert, it means, even to the inner impulses towards sin our thinking and our desires of what he mentions here. Do you mind me asking um, what you're filling your mind with at the moment? Uh, I sometimes try, try to steel myself to ask, what are you filling your mind with on social media, those who move in those sorts of circles? Would you be happy to tell a third party who or what is influencing you? Because our trials will become an arena for temptation if we aren't careful. And that's not something we can blame God for. There's a tendency in us, this is part of our sinful nature, there's a tendency in us to pass on the responsibility to someone or something else when we give in to temptation. We explain sin as being caused by other forces. We're never responsible for our own choices. You heard the um, modern retelling of the parable Jesus told about the Good Samaritan. 
where in the modern version, there are different people who pass by on the other side and do nothing. Not a priest or a Levite in this version of the story. One of them was a social worker. After a while, a social worker came down the road and saw the man who'd been mugged and beaten up, groaning on the ground, lying in a pool of blood. How awful, said the social worker. Whoever did this to you really needs help. The point being that their sympathy was not for the victim, but for the perpetrator, because obviously something must have happened to them, and they needed help. Now, that might well be true. I, I hasten to add that that silly retelling of the parable doesn't tally with the social workers I have met, so I'm not wanting to make a comment on that profession. Just to observe that we will often psychologize away the categories of right and wrong. And if someone commits some crime or does something wrong, instinctively we locate the reason somewhere else. There's some explanation which mitigates what they did. And of course we make the same steps of reasoning about our own wrongdoing. It's all to do with my genes. It's to do with my upbringing. I had to endure years of family feuding in the background. That's maybe the way I am. Pop psychology tells us all, you are not the problem, deep down you're fine. But that isn't true. I may be sinned against, but when I do the wrong thing at the end of the day, it is my fault, my choice. We're pretty good, aren't we, at spotting the culture of blame dodging in number 10 Downing Street at the moment. But I need to look at my own self-justification of my sin. I do it as well. You can think of examples. I wonder if these scenarios are the sort of things that ring true at all. Um, say somebody says, my marriage will be better when my spouse changes. Isn't that a familiar direction of travel in our thinking? No, it's not right. I must take responsibility with God's help for changing the only person I can change, me. My honesty at work, somebody else might say, that'll improve when the boss changes and I don't have them putting on pressure to cook the books financially the whole time. I'm not happy there's had to be some creative accounting, but they're the reason why I had to do it. Well... That's not strictly honest either. The trial was neutral. The temptation was something that person chose to give into. It certainly isn't God's fault. Don't blame him, says James. In fact, says James, briefly, as I close, God is always good. Let me read the last couple of verses from verse 16. Don't be deceived, my dear brothers and sisters. Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He chose to give us birth through the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Don't blame God for the struggle we have, says James. That's such good news if you think about the heartache of the last two years of COVID or, or maybe the completely up, up, unrelated ups and downs that you might be going through at the moment. God is good 
all the time. He doesn't shift and change. The universe isn't in free fall because he is our God. He doesn't wax and wane like the moon. He made the world, including the sun and moon, as an activity of love. And he has shown us his constancy even more clearly in the person of Jesus Christ dying for our sins. He loves us today as much as he did the day Jesus died on the cross for us. Just stop and pause for a second. You were in Jesus' mind at that moment. He loved us then, and he loves us today. He's absolutely consistent and consistently good. And furthermore, says James, he is able to make us good. So here's the answer to that down drag of sin in our lives. God is renewing our lives. And he's committed to renewing the world before he's done. God doesn't change, but we can change with his help. His word is the root to that happening. So you see the two alternatives then when trials come. Left to myself, the trials will quite likely lead to temptations and my sinful nature will be in danger of capitulating, and that way, says James, lies death. How much better to turn to the one who can renew my life, who in fact gave his life for me. So which is it going to be for you? Will it be when trials come, will it be triumph or disaster? If I can take us back to that quotation at the start. I wonder if just one of the steps we need to take this morning is just to be honest and true uh, and to just admit that because of our sin, if I can say this bluntly to you, because of your sin, you are the biggest danger to you spiritually. And since you cannot escape you, you need to turn to someone else for help someone of infinite compassion and wisdom and holiness. We need to turn to him, don't we? Thank God that he will not let us down. I'm going to suggest we pray together, and I couldn't have uh, chosen for a better prayer to end the sermon with than that collect that we've already prayed. I'd love to get you to turn it up. I don't know if it's possible easily to turn it up onto the screen as well to access it that way for us. It's almost written with James chapter 1, it seems to me, in mind. And I wonder if we could join together and pray it for each other and for ourselves as a congregation. Let's pray. Almighty God, in Christ you make all things new. Transform the poverty of our nature by the riches of your grace, and in the renewal of our lives, make known your heavenly glory through Jesus Christ, your Son, our Lord. Amen.